We're so glad that you've tuned in today here at Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Chase Baker, and I'm the family pastor here at Rolling Hills. We're continuing in our series, Refined. And today, our focus is on the sin of gluttony. Now, most times we think of that word, we specifically think of food, which it certainly applies to, but gluttony encompasses so much more than just that. It includes habitual greed of the excess of anything. You see, God longs for us to see Him as enough and to celebrate the gifts that He gives rather than having too much of anything He created. There's so much wisdom to be found on this topic in Proverbs. So we're excited that you're here to jump into the scripture as we head into week two of Refine. Thank you for being here. Good morning. So, quick story. Um, I have, as a pastor um, and a teacher and, and guy that works in the church, I've been privileged um, through my years in ministry to baptize um, lots and lots and lots of people. I've baptized in swimming pools, at YMCAs, and even in backyards. I've baptized in baptistries like this one that's behind me in various churches around the country. I've baptized in um, lakes and in rivers, although that's my least favorite thing to do because the ground is squishy, and I don't like that. Um, eh, you know. Uh, I baptized in both the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans, and I'll just tell you, Easter Sunday um, at sunrise in Daytona Beach, that water is cold and also rough. You're literally not just playing the part of clergy in that moment. You're literally playing the part of lifeguard because you don't want that person to go under. Um, it's a tough one. I've baptized in lots of places in seminary. I actually got to practice baptism in preparation for being a pastor who would get to do that in lots of places. Um, I've got to baptize at our Franklin campus, both of my daughters through the years. Um, and this morning during the nine o'clock service, I was privileged to be able to baptize my son, Simon. And what a joy it was for both of us. Yeah. And the thing that I love about the way that we celebrate baptism as believers here is really that anybody can step into those waters. That this isn't just some privilege or right for, you know, clergy or ordained people or men or cloth, whatever this is. No, it's an opportunity as royal priests in a holy nation, people that are set apart. If you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you have all authority under heaven and this world to step into those water and to welcome and to baptize another believer in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, it wasn't just as a pastor that I celebrated, it was just as a dad who was really pleased and really excited about what God's doing in the life of his son. And we make no mistake about teaching kids all the way up through grown-ups that baptism is not what saves a person. There is nothing salvific about that water. It's not even that clean, let me tell you. Hey, listen, no. Like, there is nothing special or significant. It's not a, a religious rite. It's not an induction into the life of the church or some sort of believer's hall of fame. Literally the moment that a, a, a person 
turns from their sin and trusts Jesus Christ for the salvation that he can provide, that's the moment that a person becomes a follower of Jesus, a Christian committing their lives to him. The waters are just an opportunity to express that to others. It's an outward expression of an inward confession that has already taken place in the life of the believer. And I'll tell you today why that's significant. Because we need to celebrate that gift of salvation. Why do we need to celebrate that gift of salvation? Because of sin in the world. And that makes this series that we're engaged in all the more important in the, in the life of the church and all the more special in what we are doing. I have no idea if I was preaching or what I would have been talking about the day that my girls were baptized. But as long as I live and lead from my right mind, I will never forget what I'm talking about on the day of Simon's baptism. And we'll probably joke about it for years and years and years to come. Buddy, when you were baptized on on February the 13th in the year 2022, Daddy talked about gluttony. <laughs> and we'll get a good chuckle like you did over what that is. You see, we're in a series, and it, it may be one of the more important series that we've ever done in the life of our church, I'll tell you. It's a series on sin. And the reason why that series matters is because until we are a people who are ready and willing to acknowledge sin in our life and our need for a Savior— will not continue to grow in maturity. As we celebrate Simon's public confession of faith in Jesus, we're in a series on seven deadly sins. Maybe you grew up in the life of a tradition or in the life of a church where the seven deadly sins were talked about a lot and you could list what they are and you knew what there was to be afraid of out there in the world. Or maybe you just saw the movie back when you were young like I did, which is a bad one and I cannot recommend it to you at all. But in the fourth century, a monk named Evagrius Ponticus came up with a list of eight evil thoughts. And if Agrius Ponticus wasn't out there standing on a street corner shouting out eight evil thoughts to an unbelieving world, trying to convince them of their sin and trying to convince them to come in faith in Jesus, he was literally talking to the folks on the inside, other monks, other clergy, other people who had made a commitment to Christ, who had confessed their faith in him. He was efforting to make a pure church, a protected church, a convicted church of people who were willing to talk about their sin. And this is where it gets really funny to me. This is where we get off topic because when sin comes up, we are so much more likely to take that outward exterior posture to point out the sin in others rather than to recognize the sin in ourselves. In Evagrius Ponticus's day, he was not unlike Jesus. Because Rich Velotas is a, a pastor in Brooklyn. Um, written a couple of books, and I like to follow him on the social. He just says good things, and he, he put this down. Jesus' harshest words in the Gospels were consistently aimed at religious leaders who focused on everyone's exterior behavior but never looked on the interior of their own hearts. This series isn't so that we can learn everything that we want to learn to go outside these walls and attack the world around us because of the lust and the wrath and the envy and the greed and the gluttony and the sloth and the pride that the world so evilly employs. It's an opportunity for us to look at ourselves and examine how these things have crept up in us. It's not the exterior posture of other people's sin that we're concerned about today. Our first conversation about sin and our ongoing dialogue about sin ought to always be personal. What are we struggling with? 
What are the things that have crept up in our lives that are preventing us from knowing and following Jesus the way that he desires? In that respect, this series may be mattering more than any of our others. Today, we're going to continue in the spirit of gluttony and all things gluttonous, gorge ourselves on scripture, bouncing all over places where scripture is so clear to teach us what this is and what it means and how we can combat it in our lives. So we'll begin in the book of Proverbs. We're going to dance around in 1 Peter. We'll head over to Deuteronomy, and what we'll unpack is that God has a good word to give us about something that we've not thought very much about, if we're being honest. In Proverbs chapter 23, you can follow along in your analog Bibles and write things down and underline it as we go. You can also follow along on the screens or on your mobile devices, but we're going to read from chapter 23, starting in verse 19. It says, listen, my son. And immediately you're like, okay, this isn't listen, unbelieving world. It's listen, family. Let's gather around together. Let's, let's talk to one another. Let's figure out what this word has to say to us. It's an interior posture towards our sin. And be wise. Listen, my son, and be wise. And set your heart on the right path. If you look up that word, right path, some of your Bible translations are going to say the way. It's literally the Hebrew word Derek, which is a boy's name. I don't know if there's anybody here named Derek today or if you have a friend. I had a friend in the fourth grade named Derek, and we could dare that kid to do anything. In fact, he ate glue just because we told him to. I don't know if he knew back then that his name meant right path or the way. He definitely wasn't doing right things. This whole idea of right path, right way, right journey, it's the road ahead, and it's literally synonymous with God's way. In fact, Psalm chapter 86 verse 11 says this, teach me your way, the right way, God. Teach me your path, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And so the writer goes on to say, hey, listen, my son, and be wise, and set your heart on the right path, God's path. And then he gives us a warning of what that looks like. He says, do not join those who drink too much wine. Oh, I realize that we're talking about this on the day of our Super Bowl parties. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. It's a biblical warning. It's a biblical warning against the sin of gluttony, but hang with me because this is not the message that you were anticipating when you heard this morning that it was probably going to be about gluttony. Let's just check this off the list and move on because we need to get a greed or pride or something because this one is hitting far too close to home. That word glutton in scripture, it actually means in Hebrew to be worthless to be vile, to be insignificant, to be light, to make, huh, somehow I didn't think that the idea of being light would be in the word glutton. I thought it made you heavy. Okay, now, to make light of, to squander, or to be lavish with. Maybe you're like me, so relieved that this is not a message about being overweight. Whew. Prior to studying this, I was a little bit scared. My friend Tim, he's a personal trainer. He's like, negative percent body fat personal trainer going shirtless on Instagram personal he's qualified to stand up in front of an audience of people and talk to them about the evil of overeating I am not this is literally like the worst episode of the pot calling the kettle black we're not going to confuse today at all hear me say this we're not going to confuse today the idea of gluttony with weight gain or weight loss what we're talking about today in terms of excess in our lives has very little to do with our diet and our ability or inability to stick with it. It's about what we want and it's about why we want it. It's not limited to food or drink, 
although those are really good illustrations of what it means to focus on right and wrong things, particularly with the understanding of the word craving. Whenever I think of craving, I always think of like Taco Bell fourth meal when I was in college or those cravings that you would have like late at night when you were studying. And then I also think about pregnancy. And we could literally put bookends on Susan's pregnancies in life because the first trimester, she was sick. That's unfortunate. The, the second trimester, girl was hungry. And the third trimester, she was mad and miserable. You just didn't want, like, it's uncomfortable apparently to be that pregnant and wait for the babies to come. So like we marked those semesters and that, that middle one where it was just all about the cravings, she kicked it old school like we were in college. She always craved bean burritos from Taco Bell and ramen noodles, like cheap food, right? Ramen noodles have made a real big surge back in our life. Like we do a poached egg inside of the liquid as it's swirling around with your ramen noodles. It's a real, I realized that I'm talking about food in a moment when you might already be hungry for lunch and when we're not supposed to be talking about that because the idea is gluttony and we don't want to feel bad about ourselves like what you ate last night before you went to bed and what you had this morning before you came here in breakfast donuts. The whole idea of this concept is what do you crave? What is it that you long for? What, what is it that you yearn for in life? In fact, those are the words that pop up for us in the book of First Peter chapter 2. Peter's writing to a, a persecuted, dispersed church, and he's basically telling them, hey, at the very beginning, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and slander of every kind, like basically all kinds of evil. I assume that includes gluttony. And then he says this, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, crave long for, yearn for, desire, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. We tell the kids in the baptism class or the adults in the baptism class or people that are preparing for this important next step of faith in their life that this is not the end of your spiritual journey. This is really just the beginning of it. Now the point of this whole salvation experience is that you would be discipled in maturity to grow up in faith and to continue living a life that desires this and nothing more that all you want is Jesus and more of it all of the time. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by you may grow up in your salvation so that you may mature now that you, verse 3, have tasted that the Lord is good. Today, when we talk about gluttony, uh, we're talking about what we make light of. We're talking about what we make, we take seriously. I'm keeping this here for every single opportunity that I have to teach during this message series, whether it's here at one of our other campuses. I'm keeping it here, and I'm keeping it real that we may list seven deadly sins. We can list seven specific things that we know that the Lord hates and that should have no part in the life of the believer, but all sin, make no mistake, leads to death. We don't want to land on the idea of seven deadly sins and then somehow inadvertently come to think that, oh, all the other sins in the world, as long as they don't come under those seven categories, then they're free-for-alls for us to do in life. Absolutely not. All sin leads to death, and not just physical death, like Fifi got hit by a car, or physical death, like someone's earthly life has expired, but an eternal separation from God Almighty, the Creator, an eternal torment. That's what we mean when we talk about death. Romans 6.23, part of the Roman road to salvation where we can literally map ourselves theologically through the idea of what it means to come to Christ says this, for the wages of sin is death, that because of our sin we earn death. Because of our sin we deserve to be separated from God. But the gift of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the joy that he has set before him, enduring a cross kind of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our 
Lord. It's not whether you talk about seven deadly sins or 700 deadly sins. All sin leads to death and separation. And for that reason, gluttony kind of becomes really easy to diminish. We can just put that down there. It's not that big of a deal. Or just to dismiss altogether. But according to scripture, it is far more serious than we think it is. You know, when you compare that idea of gluttony to the other things on the list, it it just doesn't seem in our minds like that big of a deal. Whenever you understand the idea of gluttony as, you know, the all-you-can-eat buffet on a cruise ship or at the Golden Corral, it doesn't seem like it should matter as much as wrath. It's like murder or or lust, adultery. Like, it, it doesn't seem like it should mean as much as some of the others, and yet it does. And scripture is clear. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting with verse 18, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him. I left that long pause because I didn't know if any parents out there needed to say amen. It's okay if you don't. (laughs) His father and mother shall take, like this is what you do if, if you do. I'm not saying that any of you do, like surely not here. But this is what scripture prescribes for you. If you have a son that is stubborn and rebellious, who does not obey you, doesn't listen to you when you discipline him, says this, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. This is getting serious. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Oh, so there's where we make the connection. He's not only uh, rebellious. He's not only very stubborn. He's not only refusing to be disciplined. He's also a glutton and a drunkard. And then... All the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Like, Scripture takes it seriously. So, so, so we should probably take it seriously as well. But if the idea of being gluttonous was all about me having too many slices of pizza or going to take too many visits to the Taco Bell when I was in the college, then I wouldn't be standing before you today. And let's be honest, half of us wouldn't be in this room. Ezekiel chapter 49 talks about the sin of Sodom. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, these cities that were literally destroyed because of their utter wickedness. And Ezekiel's summing it up in chapter 49. He basically says, the sin of Sodom, arrogance, and she was overfed. Oh, so, so we really can say that this is a big deal, that this somehow belongs on the list, but it still isn't what we think it is. Textbook definition of gluttony is the overindulgence or the lack of restraint in food, drink, or wealth. We do have to pause for a moment and say that there are literal diseases that people struggle with on a daily basis um, related to both of these vices. Um, The idea of eating too much to bear your feelings or to feed your feelings or to feel good, or or, or to remain in shame, like all of those things are are, are a legitimate struggle, Um, and they should be acknowledged as such. And nobody should sit here and, and bury themselves under any sort of guilt and shame for any sort of relationship that they've ever had with food, because we know that it comes from 
family of origin. It comes from emotional health. It comes a lot of times from significant trauma. And we're not here today to talk about the idea of gluttony as a, well, why don't you just make a different choice kind of issue? Because it is not that. Same thing with alcoholism. And the idea of putting away one, two, three, four, five, two, many. It, it's a literal disease, and it's claiming the hearts and lives of far too many people. But these things are diagnosable, and with a whole lot of hard work and a whole lot of effort and a whole lot of support, they are treatable. And, and so if today is the day when you're saying, okay, I get it, there's too many reminders, there, there's too many correlations, there's too many connections. I, I know that I have a, a, a deep struggled relationship with food. I know that I have a deep struggled relationship with alcohol. Would you take a necessary next step? Write that down on the card. Allow us the chance to pray for you and allow this body to come alongside you to provide support and encouragement and hope along the way. But when we're sitting here defining what is gluttony and what does it mean and how do we all struggle with it, what we have to understand is that the root of it is ultimately idolatry. And that means that regardless of your relationship with food, regardless of your relationship with alcohol, and regardless of whether or not you've ever abused either, we all have to raise our hands and confess the sin of idolatry. To say in Philippians 3.19, destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Sin of idolatry is literally wanting something and ultimately in some way worshiping something other than and even more than Jesus in this respect. In this idea, this whole picture of gluttony today and any of the other self-indulgent and self-focused things we do it is somehow or another not carving a graven image and sitting in our houses and bowing down to some little tiki statue of what it means to worship a false idol, but somehow, some way or another, thinking that our lives and our interests are somehow better than or worth more or exempt from what this word says. We're putting ourselves on top of the statue and worshiping what we want, what we desire, what we like, what we trust. I, I read this week in my preparation, this Desiring God article, and it says this, food fixation has become a new normal in American life. Whether it's the latest popular baking show, I'm partial to the one with British people, or the newest fad diet, I have tried personally a ton of them, or being a self-proclaimed foodie. It's no secret that many of us are obsessed with food. Food fixation is the inordinate preoccupation with thoughts and longings for food. And we might be tempted to think that somebody with a food fixation is obese or given to gluttony, but gluttony, defined as living a life of excess, can also manifest itself excessively through counting calories, clean and organic foods, weighing yourself all the both diets, whether it's excessive or super restrictive, literally expose the same, I love what the writer puts, main course, the golden calf of food idolatry. And so much of this is, is tied to our body image and what we understand as 
physically acceptable or uh, attractive or desirable and the endless pursuit of being something that we're not in life to look a certain way, it becomes one more idolatrous obsession. And so what we do is by the power of the Holy Spirit working through Scripture in our lives in a community that surrounds us, we confront and combat the sin of gluttony in our lives with nothing more than a smokescreen for the things that we idolize. The first thing that we do is eliminate the lies. We have to expose and eliminate lies. I have wondered through this series, and I will probably chase the rabbit of trying to figure out why in the world lying doesn't end up on this list. Like, why are we all the time, we're talking about lust and gluttony and greed and envy and sloth and, 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 and wrath and pride, but why are we talking about the sin of lying? It is serious. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, underline that, and the liars, right, will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. When I was a kid, I have no idea where I heard this or why I know this. It's just case in point that sometimes the things that you learn stick in your brain, and they shouldn't because there's much more useful stuff that I could put up there than this. But I learned a song, Revelation, Revelation, 21, 8, 21, I don't even know where I heard this. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell, burn in the fire, burn in the fire. Like literally, like why in the world do I know that? But that's what scripture says. Like so we're, okay, the idolaters, the sexual, like the more people, but the liars are literally gonna, it's what we said. That all sin leads to death. So this whole picture of lies, John Mark Comer is an author, he wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of hurry because we all need to take a pause in life and, and literally focus on the, the good disciplines that point us towards Jesus. But he, he, he also wrote this in a book called No More Lies, that the problem isn't that we've been told lies. The problem is that we end up living them, that, that somehow our, uh, uh, the things that we believe manifest themselves into images that we either accept or reject and those images become the idols that garnish all of the attention in our life. Not quite as old as Evagrius Ponticus, um, but Thomas Aquinas, about a thousand years later, he accidentally, incidentally, he, he summed up the eight evil thoughts into the list of seven deadly sins that we most memorize and relate to today. He wrote in a book called Summa Theological, basically the summary of all things theological, that the three enemies of the soul, you know we have three enemies? the flesh, the world, and the devil. And that so much of our sin can be related to those three things. In fact, if you go to the temptation of Jesus and you read through the story of Jesus going out into the wilderness, being lured there by the tempter, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and being tempted by the enemy, you can read it in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1. You know that those temptations that, 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 that Christ faced are literally the temptation of the flesh, the temptation of the world, and the temptation of the devil. The first one was this, hey, hey, if you're really hungry, you should turn that stone into bread. It's no accident that that temptation was related to food and was related to basic human need and was ultimately related to basic human desire. This is the picture of our flesh, the thing that we want, the thing that we crave, the, the thing that in our heart and in our soul and in our being we desire. And he said, do this. And Jesus combated that temptation with, of course, Scripture. The, the next one was the world. The enemy took him onto the, 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 the top of the highest tower in the city, and he, he told him to look out and said that he could have, hey, listen, hey, why don't you throw yourself off of this tower, and you won't get hurt? What? 
it's the temptation of the world. Hey, hey, you can get really close to that danger. You won't get hurt. The world is full of dangers. The world is full of difficulties. You, you know that the top of the tower or the edge of the cliff is where we get the absolute best views in life. And they're also where we are literally sitting on the biggest edge of temptation and desire and disaster in our lives. And the enemy says, throw caution to the wind. You can do this. You'll be fine. That's what the world tells us. You can have this. You'll be fine. You can do this. It's okay. It's your right. No, it's, no one will judge. This is all, it's a temptation of the world and we face it. The unbelieving world around us is constantly tempting us to deny what the truths of this word says and then the temptation of the devil where he literally says, hey, I'll give you everything that you can see if you'll just bow down and worship me, trust me, believe me, follow me instead. John chapter 8, Jesus summed up who this enemy is. He literally looks at people and says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Scripture says that he comes to steal you from you and kill you and literally destroy you. He's not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What are the lies that you have heard? and that you continue to believe um, and that you buy into in this world around your intake and around your indulgence. The things that tell you, oh, you need this. This will make you happy. Other people don't love you. You deserve this. This will make you whole and this will make you healthy. And, and this may not be here tomorrow, so you might as well partake of all of it today. It's your life and it's your body and your desire matters. There's lies out there. And when we believe them, we lose. The next thing we have to do is we have to enlist help. This is why there's so much imagery in Scripture about this walk with Christ, this life that we live being a battle, and it's one that you can't win alone, and that's why we look inside this church, and that's why we look inside this body of believers, and we're willing to call out sin because we want to protect one another. We want to look out for one another. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, we're not standing on a street corner shouting at the world about all the evil things that they do and all the evil things that they're a part of. We're literally having the conversation among us, brothers and sisters, people who've confessed Christ in your life, people who have experienced and tasted that the Lord is good and trusted him for salvation. Listen, if one of us is caught in a sin, then what it takes is those of us who are spiritual around them in this moment to restore them. And then, oh, hey, FY, it's gently. That's what we get wrong a lot, by the way. Like we want to confront each other in our sin and, and take care. I mean, we, we who are spiritual are going to restore you, but we're going to do it with an elbow rather than with a hug. We should restore them gently, but watch yourselves, or, or you may also be tempted. Who do you have in your corner? Who's in your life that can be real and be real honest with you? Who's your Evagrius Ponticus who, who's looking at you and saying, hey, these are, these are eight dangers that I see in your life. These are seven things that will mess you up and trip you up and make it impossible for you to follow Christ in your life. Who's literally sitting you saying, this is a struggle and I see it and, and, and I don't want that for you because I love you and I desire what's better for you. So let's talk about it. Let's read about it. Let's pray about it. Let's commit ourselves to the thing that's going to eliminate it in your life. You got to enlist the help of others, and this certainly would not be a message on the idea of gluttony if we didn't also say that we have to exhibit some self-control. 
have to exhibit some self-control going past 1 Peter into 2 Peter. He's literally writing to a dispersed group of believers who are facing every kind of temptation and every kind of persecution imaginable. And he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge and to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. We need that self-control. In fact, we're not going to do any of the other things, the knowledge or the goodness or the perseverance or the love, if we don't also have some self-control. Paul writes about it and he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And we sing a little song about that too. I won't bore you with my tunes, but it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will find me many a day at my house looking at the Allen children and saying, name the fruits of the Spirit. And they will say, Dad, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'll say, which one do you need to work on the most right now? And they will often say patience or self-control. Like somehow or another, There has to be a discipline in our lives. And we will not have that apart from this word. And we will not have that apart from others. A lot of us have been conditioned to think and believe that somehow or another the Bible says everything in moderation. That's not a Bible verse. Did you know that? You came in here thinking, oh, the Bible says everything in moderation. No, some Greek philosophers like Aristotle and some Greek poets like a guy that I can't remember his name, they're the ones who said everything in moderation. And it had a lot of different quotes. Chinese proverbs believed that they were the first ones to say everything in moderation. The Greeks said, no, we have it. Oscar Wilde said everything in moderation, even moderation. Like even in our effort to be moderate, we should be moderate. I think that's a great sentence. But the Bible does say in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, I have the right to do anything, but you say not everything is beneficial. Maybe you've heard that sentence. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Just because you can have two pieces of key lime pound cake on the eve of your wife's birthday, Nick Allen, doesn't mean that you should. Everything is permissible. That's like a relief. That means that nobody's going to be counting or judging the number of chicken wings that you eat tonight. That, 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 that nobody's going to tell you to put down that second piece of cake at your Super Bowl party. Like, nobody's, like, but just because something is permissible doesn't mean that it's beneficial. It doesn't mean that it's good for us. And so somehow or another, we have to land the plane on what is good and, and do our best to choose that. That's self-control. And then lastly, we just want to enjoy God's grace and the good examples that Scripture provides enjoy God's grace. Romans 7, 18 says this, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. Wow. That's a really sad verse about the fact that we're never going to get it right, but that's the greatest evidence of God's grace that there is. You won't get it all right. You won't make all wise choices. You won't live a life that's sin-free. And that's why we can be so grateful for the grace of God and the love that covers all of those sins. And then finally, the good examples. Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians 10.6 that these things, talking about all the Old Testament stories, all the Old Testament heroes, all the Old Testament failures, all of these things happened as examples for us so that what? So that we would not crave, desire, long for, yearn for evil things as they also craved. John Piper says that gluttony is more about the direction of our love than the content of our cupboard. We're not going to come around and inspect each other's pantries. And we're not going to weigh in before we baptize one another. 
and we're not going to check your stats before you lead a community group or engage in kids ministry or serve on one of our teams or go on a mission trip. But somehow or another, we do need the power of the Holy Spirit to convict us in areas of our lives where we struggle and in areas of our lives, including diet, including exercise, including all of the other things that the world presents in front of us that we might be tempted to idolize and put before our relationships with Jesus. What do you crave? Because wanting anything, even closely as much as, and certainly not more than Jesus, is idolatry. Make no mistake, what you worship controls you. What you worship controls you. And if you've ever lived a life, or even a portion of your life, where you feel like food, or wine, or anything else in this life that you do in excess is controlling you, then you know what idolatry is. And you know that it has no place in the heart and the mind and the life of a committed Christ follower. We don't want to crave evil things. We want to follow good examples. We want to crave the pure spiritual milk of this word and this foundation. We want to long for it. We want to desire it more than anything else. This whole picture of food today is nothing more than a really good example of what it means to want God more. Think of the thing that you love. What's that pleasure? What's that food that releases all the endorphins and, and, and just makes you feel good? That's the way we are to want Jesus more than anything else. And so help us, God. Help us, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the conviction that comes from your word, by the support that comes from this body, and by the truth that comes from your Son, to live a life where we crave you more than anything else. Help us to, as scripture says, seek you first. And everything else will take care of itself. Help us to seek you, desire you, long for you, crave you more than anything. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray today. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of our Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it or share it with some friends. You can also check out some of our other great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app or follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful for you.